Anybody been here long enough to ever hear about my very first? It, so I'll tell you, I, uh, so I was pretty young, and it was a Sunday night. That's what you do with guys uh, in older churches that have never preached before. You put them on there on Sunday night, okay? Because it's a gracious crowd. Nobody's visiting, trying to check your church out. Um, so Sunday night, uh, I'm, I'm going to preach, and I decided I'm going to preach on Philemon, all right? Which, if you know about Philemon, it's the one in the New Testament where you don't, it's not like Philemon chapter 1 verse 2. You just say Philemon 2 and you know it's verse 2 because there's only one chapter. It's pretty short. I had um, about 15 pages of notes for Philemon, which means my notes were about 18 times longer than the book itself. Also, I had not slept in a couple of nights. I was so nervous. I didn't really want to do this. I don't know why I was asked to do it. I said yes, and then anxiety immediately kicked in. I went, I know, at least two nights probably without sleeping very well. So I get up there, um, and I'm nervous as a cat the whole way through. They're they're singing some songs, uh, Sunday night service. And so I get up there, and... uh, stand up in front of these people and I completely, my mind completely goes blank. I mean, I couldn't read uh, the notes in front of me. My eyes didn't work. Uh, My mouth didn't work. My brain didn't work. And uh, I I feel like I probably blacked out, but I didn't fall down. You you know, if you've ever been there. Eight minutes later, I sat down. I didn't have any idea what it was that I had said, and I still don't, and thankfully nobody recorded it um, or anything like that. Sat down uh, on the front row in what I can only describe as an ocean of shame, okay? You ever been there? You ever sat down in an ocean of shame? That's where I was. And I told the Lord right there, I'm never doing this again. Ever, 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 ever doing that. I'll do anything else you want me to. I ain't doing that. Well, so you fast forward, turns out um, God had a different idea uh, about what to do. I mean, some of you are like, eight minutes, how can we get back there? Um, (laughs) Doesn't sound so bad, right? um, This morning, as I've been studying through Joshua, and particularly Joshua 1 over the last weeks and months, that that moment kind of keeps coming to my mind, and I feel like Joshua is having one of those moments in Joshua chapter 1. And we started last week, and I told you, listen, uh, you know, uh, Moses is dead. I mean, a few things to know, uh, to remind you of. Moses is dead, and Joshua's being commissioned. In fact, it's not just Moses who's dead. It's really the whole generation that's been wandering in the wilderness who, who wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. They're, they've died. And now Joshua stands at the, at the Jordan. And he's going to lead this nation that's grown up in the wilderness, the second generation, into this promised land. And so here's the thing. Joshua knew that this day was coming. I mean, it's no surprise that Moses wasn't going into the promised land with them. 
It's no surprise that Moses at some point in his life near future was going to die. But the reality of it being the day is undoubtedly overwhelming. And so what we see, or what we looked at last week, is that God comes with this command. It's a commission, but the commission comes in kind of two parts. Part of it's a command, and and part of it is these promises that God makes. And so the commands go like this. And in verse 2, he says to Joshua, arise. So Moses is dead after the death of Moses. And then uh, God says, uh, Moses, my servant, is dead in verse 2. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Arise. It's another series of commands that, that are in the imperative. And, and what God says to him is, you see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 7, you see it in verse 9. It's, it's repeated again at the very end of this chapter in verse 18. Be strong. Be courageous. They're commands from God. And what he does is this arise and take the people across the Jordan. Be strong, be courageous. They're They're grounded in these promises that God makes in chapter 1. The promises go like this in verse 3, the promise, I've given this to you. I've given it to you. It's already yours. I've given it to you. Now go possess it. In verse 5, he says, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. In verse 9, God says to him, The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In fact, when the end of this chapter, we're going to look at it in a second, when the tribes, they're speaking back to Joshua. They're making their commitment to Joshua. Joshua, you're a man. You're the leader. We're going to follow you. They say in um, a prayer, uh, you, you can read it as a, as a prayer. They say, may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. This, this prayer they're praying according to the promise of God. So be strong, be courageous, and I'm with you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. You know, it's interesting. When you trace this be strong and be courageous commands throughout the Old Testament, and even it, 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 they, they show up in, in a form in the New Testament as well, there's always the command, and it's always linked to the promise that God will be with you and not forsake you. In, in fact, when uh, the Lord comes to Moses to say to Joshua, God comes to Moses and tells Joshua, uh, encourage and strengthen him. This is a guy who needs it. Later, Moses is going to say to Joshua and all of Israel in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. That's where he hears it. And then God shows up and commissions him in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. I'll be with you. 
David tells his son Solomon when it's clear that Solomon will be the next king. Now, my son, the Lord will be with you. And then gives him some instructions and says, Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. Hezekiah, as Assyria is coming and attacking, he he says to the people, Be strong and courageous. For the Lord our God is with us. David in the Psalms, Psalm 27, he's he's praising God and he's preaching to his heart. And he says, I believe, I believe in Psalm 27, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's preaching to himself, to his heart. Isaiah tells the people of God the same thing in Isaiah 35. And and real quick, and I'll be done here, but you go all the way to the New Testament, the end of Jesus' ministry after the resurrection, and he's with the disciples on the mountain, Galilee, and he's giving them the great commission. And Matthew, the very last word Matthew has to say about the disciples. In Matthew 28, they're waiting for Jesus on the mountain, Galilee. Jesus shows up, the resurrected Jesus. They, they fall prostrate in worship, and the text says, and they worshiped. And they doubted. Matthew's writing this. He knows he was there. And then Jesus says, based on my authority, heaven and on earth, which is another way of saying, you can be strong and courageous. My authority is in play. Go. I'm sending you. And then you know how he ends it? Lo, I am with you always. Till the end of the age. So my question this morning that I want to ask as we look at Joshua 1, we come to the end of Joshua 1, what does it look like when God is with you in your life? And so the first thing I've, I've, I would say it this way, I would say when God's with you, you can have confidence in the midst of uncertainty. So, there's this uncertainty of loss that's in the background. We looked at it last week. Moses is dead. That's a loss. He's irreplaceable. Or so it seems. But it's not true. There's so much that Joshua doesn't know now that Moses is dead. But he's in good company. From when God told Noah to build an ark. There was lots of uncertainty there. When God comes and calls Abraham out of Ur, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Follow me to a place, and I'll let you know when we get there. I mean, that wouldn't even... I've been married to my wife 27 years, and that ain't going to work. 
get in the car and I'll tell you when we get there. She's not getting in the car. There's Jacob, there's Joseph, there's Moses. Joshua finds himself in good company. Not only is it the uncertainty of loss, uncertainty of loss, I think there's the uncertainty of, of self. Um, J- Joshua now has to lead a people after it not going so well the first time he tried to lead the people. Look, look with me in verse 10. He gets the commission from God, and immediately he turns to the people and and begins to lead them. He begins to act out this commission that God has said. I I want you to go. I want you to rise. I want you to lead the people. Be strong and courageous. I'm with you. So Joshua takes God at his word, goes to the people. In verse 10, it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp. Command the people. Prepare your provisions for within three days... You're going to pass over this Jordan and go and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. I would say it this way, this kind of uncertainty of self. If I'm Joshua, the thing that I'm most aware of is not my leadership prowess. It's my weakness. It's my self-doubt. If you went back, if we took the time, we could go back to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And we could relay a story. It's pretty familiar. Maybe you know about it. It's when Moses is going to send 12 spies for 40 days to spy out this promised land. And at the end of the 40 days, they come back and the majority report of the 12 spies is these people are huge. I mean, it's an entire nation of, uh, of uh, you know, WWF cage fighters. That, that's what they are. And they're huge, and they could all uh, play, you know, on the, on the offensive line of an NFL team. And there's no way we're getting in there. There's no way. We should go back now. Well, the minority report was Caleb and Joshua. This is what Joshua says in verse, or chapter 14, beginning in verse 8 of Numbers. He says this, if the Lord delights in us, you know, he's kind of had enough. He's tired of listening to these naysayers. He was there for the same 40 days. He went on the same promise that Moses had given from God. And so he says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. I mean, you can just see him, right? Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land, for they, they're bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. It's a rousing speech that he gives. It's, it's kind of thing that if you were making a movie, it would be, you know, be the, the climax scene of the hero in the movie that's going against all the odds. And you're left wondering, was it enough to turn the tide of the people? Well, the very next verse says this, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
No. His first time to lead the people, to call the people to remember the promises of God, the response was they wanted to stone him. Now, Obviously, by the time you get to Joshua 1, that generation is, is passed away, and this is a new generation. But there's a sense in which the memory of that event, I mean, that, an event like that in a leader's life does not pass away very easily. And Joshua knows leading this people are not going to be easy. It'll be hard. Not only is he following the greatest leader, the one whom Deuteronomy says, there never was another one like him until Jesus came. He knows that left to his own abilities to lead this people, he'll fail. He can't do it. And so that's why God's saying to him, I'm, I'm with you in light of this. I know you feel uncertain. I know you may have fear. In fact, he, he tells him, listen, no man is going to be able to stand against you. All the days of your life, I'm with you. Even though you're weak, let me make you strong. And that's good news, isn't it? It's worth meditating on. These are not promises only for Joshua, they are specific and applied to a time and a place, and yet made by the same God who promises us he'll never leave us, never forsake us. Who says to you, take up your cross and follow me. Who commissions you to go based on all his authority, even in the midst of your doubt. And says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Listen, it's comforting. Anybody ever feel like they're in over their head in life? Maybe overhead and over your head in relationships. You seem to be drowning in some of the complexities that you find yourself in. Oh, maybe you're over your head in your marriage. Maybe you're over your head in parenting. I, I know all about that. Maybe you feel over your head at work. Maybe this situation or that situation... Uh, some emotional difficulty. Maybe it's a physical challenge that, that you're encountering. Maybe it's a relational strain you're walking through and you don't know what to do. And maybe the only thing you do know to do seems extremely hard. So let me say to you, facing whatever situation you're facing this morning, God's with you. He, he can give you this confidence in the midst of the uncertainty that you're in. He give you strength, grant you strength in the midst of your weakness. Will you trust him with that? We roll those things over to God. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 5, cast 
all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Can you do that this morning? Well, this uncertainty that we're talking about, not just of loss and and uh, uncertainty of self. I want you to see there's an uncertainty of change here in the text, and I don't want you to miss that. Look again at verse 11. There, there's a change coming in how God is going to provide. In, in some ways, there's this change in how God's going to work in the lives of these people. God's will for the people is not going to change at all, but God's ways are going to undergo a change, And sometimes that leaves us feeling incredibly uncertain. Look at what it says again in verse 11. He says, okay, pass through the midst of the camp and, and command the people. So he's saying, Here, this is what you do, officers. Go into the camp and I want you to disseminate to the people and say, prepare your provisions. For within three days you're going to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Three days of preparation for provisions so that you can go and take possession. And in that verse, if you stop and think about it for just a moment, you realize everything is changing. They're instructed to go and make provision. Do you know what they've done for the last... You know what question they have not asked each other for the last 40 years? No one woke up for 40 years and said, well, what's for breakfast today? Because it was manna. They never had to endure the conversation for 40 years. Well, what do you want to eat tonight? Well, I don't know. What about this? No. What about... You, do, you have, do you guys have those conversations? They didn't have to worry about provisions. God, God took them, cradled them by the hand, walks them through. I mean, all, the only thing they did was grumble. I mean, they had nothing to complain about, and yet they still complained. But they never had to worry about provisions. And this, I don't want you to read this in verse 11, is hey, gather enough manna for the next you know, a little while because the manna wouldn't keep. This is not about that. This is your, God say, I'm moving this relationship from miraculous to providential. Maybe I'd say it that way. But from miraculous manna to my providential care. Now, let me make one quick distinction and move on. Let me, for the nerds in here. A miracle, when we talk about a miracle, it's God working outside of his laws of creation. It's, it's, a, it's God clearly, supernaturally uh, intervening into how things normally work, like manna showing up on the ground every morning when you wake up. Now, that is not to say that all that God does isn't supernatural because it is. But when we're talking about providence, God's providential care, it means that God's going to work and he does work through natural means to provide one way or another 
providentially. One guy said it this way, God's involved in the world through more than just miracles. Even natural processes can be attributed to divine agency. When a burn heals, it is God who heals it through the natural processes with which he is richly endowed and so carefully attended. The writer of Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians, when he speaks of Jesus, he holds all things together. The air you breathe and the gravity that keeps you to the ground. The, the steps of your life, all of those things are ordained by God. And he providentially works in all of these ways that we could never fully with our finite minds map out the infinite design of God in all the things that we're doing. And so it is no less the supernatural work of God. It just seems to happen from the naked eye in ways that are ordinary. And God's about to move from miraculous provision to providential provision. And that's a huge change. You know, when our circumstances change or something in our life changes, the first thing we would say, I mean, if we were there, we might be tempted to say, wait a minute, there's no man on the ground. Where did God go? Did God change? No, he didn't change at all. His will did not change. His way was adjusted and it was adjusted for our good. See, what God's doing is he's, going to mature them. He's going to sanctify them. He's going to draw them further than their knowledge of Him so that they trust Him in new ways. You see this? Listen, manna was an act of faith. You woke up, you trusted God, He brought the manna, you gave thanks. Now what they're going to do is they're going to go in and God's going to provide for them, but He's going to provide for them in different ways than He provided for them before. And they will still have to trust Him and they will get to trust Him in new ways. God has not changed at all. But His way of you relating to Him or the faith that you're growing in, yeah, that, that undergoes change all the time. It's helpful for us. So when circumstances change or something, you know, the bottom seems to fall out or something like that, and, and our first inclination, well, where did God go? And you think, well, God didn't go anywhere. He's drawing you in new ways to greater faith. They're going to go from this miraculous to providential care, they're going to go from wandering to warring. These wanderers are going to become warriors. They're going to go from promise to possession. The anticipation of 40 years of this promised land, really 400 years, to now they're going to possess what's been promised. Joshua hadn't even fought one battle in the promised land, and God already guaranteed him Victory. Don't miss that. When God, the one true God, the only God who is sovereign over all peoples and all nations and all the universe, 
when this God is with you, you have nothing to fear. You, you don't have to fear loss. You don't have to fear the insecurity that you find in yourself. You don't have to fear the uncertainties that come with change. His presence is unwavering. He holds you in the palm of his hand. And you have nothing to be afraid of. Which is why he can say to Joshua, be strong, be courageous. Well, not only do you have the certainty under, uh, um, what, what do we call it? Confidence in the midst of uncertainty. You have success according to Scripture. We briefly talked about this last week. I just want you to see um, as Joshua begins to live this out. If you remember, verses 7 and 8, what God says is, hey, listen, um, you know, be strong and courageous. Do everything according to the law that Moses, my servant, has commanded you. Don't turn from the right or the left. You will have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do all that's written in it. Your way will be prosperous. You'll have Good success. You'll have success according to Scripture. Now, let me show you how this works itself out, beginning in verse 12. Now what Joshua's going to do. So, he speaks to the chiefs of the people. They go to all of the people. Hey, get ready in three days. We're on the move. Now he comes to two and a half tribes. Okay? And in verse 12, it says, To the Reubenites and to the Gadites, And to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua's going to say. Now, there's a lot of history here I'm not going to get into, but to remind you, what happens is they get to this eastern side of the Jordan, and you got a couple of tribes that go, hey, this looks pretty good around here. We, can we, Moses, can we just stay here? We don't, this is nice. We already beat these people. We shouldn't let this land go to waste. We'll just camp here, and good luck to you guys over there across the Jordan. That, that's kind of how it goes. Well, this doesn't work out very well, as you can imagine. Moses gets upset. There's a lot of misunderstanding. It ends with Moses saying, okay, fine. If you don't want to go into the promised land proper, that's fine. You can stay over here. But here's the thing. The men that are able, from your tribes, they're going to go with the rest of them, and they're going to fight with them. They're going to, we're all in this together. You don't get to take early retirement. This is what he says to them. And so, when Joshua goes, and he begins to lead, and he begins to say to these tribes, Joshua's not making things up on his own. You know what he's doing? He's communicating. He's retelling the Word of God. It just so happens to be the Word of Moses, who was his mentor, wrote the Word of God, and he's reciting to them the Word of God. These next verses, 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, all of these things are what Moses has already said. The content 
of his instruction to the tribes is God's word. And what he says to him, listen, one part of the body cannot be indifferent to another part of the body. Our vision has to extend beyond our own good to the good of the body, the whole. The rest that we'll talk about in the weeks to come that God promises, it, it, can, all, it can ultimately be experienced apart from everybody. The promise can only be fully experienced and fully enjoyed when it's experienced and enjoyed by everyone. And it's so interesting, as all of this plays out in the coming pages of Joshua, you find that this military success that they are going to enjoy is never based upon Joshua's ingenuity or how strong their army is or how innovative their strategy is, human strength, human strategy. It's going to have nothing to do with the success of the Israelites in battles. It's always going to be tied to them obeying God's word, to them trusting God's word. And Joshua, right here from the very beginning, is leading these people from God's Word. When they're walking in obedience to God, they can win a battle with nothing but trumpet players and people shouting. And when they're not, they get routed. So, confidence, strength, courage, all these things, they hinge on trusting in God's presence, clinging to God's Word. So, just soak that in. Whatever you're walking through, whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever decisions you're making, God doesn't spell out all the details here. Just trust me, follow me, stay in tune with me, listen to my word, hear it, heed it, and you'll have success. That's why when we gather as elders of this church, we open God's word. And it's not because we open God's Word with the expectation that we're going to read some passage that's going to tell us how to decide this one thing that's on the agenda tonight. But we read God's Word because we trust Him. And it turns out that He leads us through His Word. All right, moving on. I'm well past eight minutes by now. Third thing I'd say is you can have hope beyond yourself. Look at this in verse 16. They answered Joshua after he told them all the things. And they said this. And this is, I, so I, they're earnest. They're totally earnest, okay? It's like when my seven year, my kids were seven years old, you know, and they would come and they would tell me, What they believed in their heart was so true, and yet you as a parent in your sovereign parenthood know this is crazy. They don't. This is what they say. All that you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. And then here's the kicker. This is sort of there. And let us prove it to you, verse 17. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. 
that probably wasn't the best evidence to present. But they did mean it, and they were sincere. Even though they had no idea what exactly they were going to encounter when they crossed the Jordan, they were sincere. And then they pray. It's like a prayer here. I want you to read it as a prayer. This is not a condition. They're not saying, but Joshua, you have to do this. This is their prayer wish for Joshua. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. So see, ultimately, it would not be the obedience of the people who Joshua led that would make the difference. It would be the faithfulness of God. That's what they're saying. That's what Moses or Joshua knows that he can count on. At the end of the day, it is not going to be the obedience of these people. It is not going to be whether they do all that they said they were going to do because we know that they're not. Just like you know that you're not. But the hope was in the one who was greater than Joshua and greater than Israel. And greater than every one of us. In fact, they say to him, whoever rebels against your command and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. But the hope is not in the response of the people. I want to show you one thing. If you want to turn there, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you wanted to know where it is, if you were familiar with Numbers 13 and 14, we talked about it a minute ago, but back there, something significant happens in the record. Moses sends out the 12 spies into the land, and he names who those 12 spies are. But when he gets to Joshua's name, He's not called Joshua initially. In chapter 13, verse 8, he's called Hosea, the son of Nun. And it's not till you get to a few verses later in verse 16 that you read this. And the names of the men whom Joshua sent to spy out the land, these are the names. And then it says this, and Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And you might read right past that like I have a hundred times until you realize, wait a minute, why is that there? What's going on? And then you realize you can look up and find out Hosea's name uh, is changed to Joshua. And you realize Hosea means literally deliverance or salvation. And so in some ways when Hosea would introduce himself, he'd say, Hi, I'm Kelly Holbrook, and he'd say, I'm salvation. So what his name meant, salvation. Deliverer. But when Moses makes this slight change, he said, well, it's not exactly right. You're, you know, nothing on your parents, but let's make this more accurate. And so when he calls him Joshua, his name no longer means I'm salvation. It means God saves. Literally, Yahweh saves. And it's the first name in the Bible to include the name of God like that. 
And so we read in this book that bears the name of Joshua. The overall message is clear that the Lord delivers his people. He saves his people because of God's presence with his people. No matter what it is that they may face, no matter what it is that they may encounter, he will deliver them. He'll save them. God delivers. God saves his people. That's why you know you can have hope when he's with you. And if that slight change isn't interesting enough to you, you might want to know what the Hebrew name Joshua is when it's translated into the New Testament Greek. It translates into Greek as Jesus, whose name literally translates the Lord saves. Don't miss this. All this talk about God's presence with his people, all of this is foreshadowing the day when God would literally come and dwell in flesh among his people. Jesus, the Lord who saves, would come to earth as a man. The perfect presence of God dwelling with and among his people. Dwelling with and among a people who were separated from God's presence. Because that's the human condition. That's the story of our lives, the story of the world around us. We've all sinned against God. We've turned away from God. We've separated ourselves from God. And the ultimate explanation for all that wrong is sin. All that's wrong with the world around us is sin. We've all turned away from God, and the effects of turning away from Him are all around us. And the ultimate need we have is to be reconciled to God, to be restored to God's presence. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus came to make that possible. Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't live, a life of perfect fellowship with God and total obedience to Him. He didn't deserve the payment of sin and death and separation from God, and yet He chose to stand in our place to take that payment to to experience death, to experience separation, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He stood in our place on the cross, suffered our separation, the penalty for our sin, and was the ransom for our reconciliation. That's why I want to be intentional. Chapter 1 and all the way through Joshua, this applies to us. It's only through Christ and our faith and trust in who He is and what He's done that these promises can be a reality in our life. Apart from God, we're separated. We have no reason apart from Christ to have confidence or strength or courage or success or hope. Only through trust in the one who saves and the one who delivers. It's only in, through trust in Jesus that these promises can be a reality. So do you know him this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you know what? You need to, First Peter 5, cast your cares upon him before you walk out of here today. Maybe this morning, for the first time, you need to throw your life on him. 
trust him with everything. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do this morning. It's in our strength and it's not our resolves this morning. We don't walk out of here saying all that you do, all that you command will do. We're not walking out of here in our own strength and confidence and courage. We, we, we come humbly and bow before you and say, we so desperately need to know your presence. So we can be strong and we can be courageous. With all the things that feel uncertain and untethered in our lives, Father, we need to know your will. We want to be people who walk by your word. Father, we confess this morning we have no other hope besides you. And so I pray that you would draw us near. You're already near. You haven't gone anywhere. But Father, we'd be drawn near in our experience, in our lives families in this church to your I never will leave you I never will forsake you presence and so we ask this the only way we can in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit Amen